The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Exodus chapter 20. And the title of my message today is Live Long and Prosper. And there are a few comments maybe I should make before I begin the message. Uh, First, I don't intend to use a Star Trek episode as the uh, theme of this message, and nor do I put the wisdom of Mr. Spock above the words of Scripture. And then secondly, uh, this is not going to be a prosperity gospel message that promises that each of you, if you'll just send me a hundred dollars, everybody send me a hundred dollars, I promise you that the Lord will return to you a hundredfold, and all of your dreams will come true, and, and you'll have everything that your heart desires. However, if you will, each of you send me a hundred dollars, one of us will be very happy, and much of our desires will be met. Uh, but this is not a prosperity gospel message. Contrary to what word of faith preachers teach, God has another way for you to be prosperous and content. And it's not that we can call it some kind of a secret of success that nobody really knows about. It's just been revealed to us. Now, the secret of this, if you want to call it one, is one that's been told to us for 3,500 years. And this is what God says about being obedient to his law. That if you obey God's commandments, you will live long and you will prosper. Now, especially here in the fifth commandment of Exodus chapter 20, God says in verse number 12, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This commandment is usually considered to be the head of the second table of the law. Now, a few minutes, uh, weeks ago, I mentioned that we could envision that God gave Moses two tablets of stone, and on these stones were written on one side, one stone, the first four commandments, and then on the second stone are the remaining six. And we derive that division from Jesus' teachings when he said that there are two great commandments in the law. Matthew 22, verse 35, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments... Hang all the law and the prophets. Obviously, Jesus knew that there were ten commandments, and so did the lawyer that questioned him. And yet, when he answered this, the lawyer didn't say, well, no, you've got that wrong. You don't understand. There are ten commandments, and what you've said is not even in the ten commandments. No, there had to be a, a light bulb that went on in the man's mind as he listened to Jesus' brilliant exposition of how the commandments are arranged Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were used to opposing every word that Jesus said. And this Pharisee was taken down a notch when he had to admit that Jesus' interpretation of the law was not the one that they would commonly give. Jesus gave the correct exposition of the purpose of the law, and that is to teach us to honor God, first of all, and then 
to love our neighbor as ourselves. The law has those two purposes. God is first, and in that first table of the law is our duty to obey God and to respect God. And in the second table of the law, it is to love our neighbor or our, is our duty to our fellow man. Now, there is some disagreement as to where the dividing line between the two tables of the law is to be made. There are some who say that the division should be five and five, and that this commandment properly belongs to the first table of the law. And you might say, well, well how, does that, how does that work? I mean, it seems to be clear to us that the fifth commandment has to do with the relationship of man to man, that this is not talking about man to God, so then it must refer to the second table of the law. Well, the key to that interpretation that it belongs in the first part is understanding by what the commandment means by father. Uh, those who believe that this belongs to the first table say that father here is representative of God and that we first have to start with honoring God as our father and then all of our relationships filter down from there. And I wouldn't strenuously fight that interpretation I certainly do believe that it would be uh, good if more parents would put the fear of God into their children. I mean, you're not going to have much trouble getting your children to obey if they look at you as God to them, so to speak. And if you tell them, if you disobey me, the wrath of hell is going to come down on you, then you probably won't have prob uh, problems getting them to obey. But rather than take that interpretation that it belongs in the first table of the law, we're going to stick with this, that it belongs in the second table. And this is the beginning of the God's instructions about how we are to treat our fellow man. Now, it's worthy for us to note that the first word of the command is honor. Now, that word itself definitely tells us that there is a connection to the first table of the law. Campbell Morgan wrote, the meaning of the word honor is to attach weight to, to put in the place of authority or superiority, to hold in high opinion, to reverence in the best sense of the word. And so, in other words, honor stands as the head of the first table of the law. That is the honor that belongs to God. And then honor belongs in the second table of the law as we honor our father and mother. And that's a relationship that can't be demeaned as we see the importance of reverence to God in the first table on the divine level, then we're also to see there's a pattern here established that there's to be reverence for our fellow man in the second table of the law, beginning with our father and our mother. There isn't another word that God could have used that would be more convincing and more convicting than the word honor to show how critical that the command is. So this command then stands as a bridge between the first and second tables of the law, showing us that there is an inseparable, inseparable connection between these two things. And that's a connection that is very strongly emphasized by Jesus and also by the Apostle John. Uh, John uh, tells us and Jesus tells us, you cannot love God unless you love your fellow man. And the love for our fellow man starts right here. Love starts with father and mother, because that's the first connection that every one of us has to our fellow man. So John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So there we have the two tables of the law, love God 
and love our fellow man. And we cannot keep the Ten Commandments unless we keep that in mind. Love God and love your fellow man. Now, I want to begin the exposition of the commandment today by just dealing with this, this, this first point. We'll stay right here on this today. And that is the social issue. The social issue involved in this fifth command. Now, the second table of the law begins with the duty of believers towards our fellow man. And I want to emphasize this, that the commandments were given to Israel as the people of God. But we know that not all in Israel were saved. There was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. Many of them knew nothing at all about worshiping the one true God. And that's evident by the atrocious acts that took place even while God was giving these commandments up on the mountain to Moses. Because down in the valley, the people had made an idol. They were worshiping a golden calf and they had stripped off their clothes and they were naked and they were dancing around this golden calf and they said to each other, this is our God. And we wonder, how could they be the people of God? And yet Israel still is representative. There's a connection to them as God's chosen people. They, they were the connection for anyone that came into the borders of Israel, that when the stranger came within Israel's borders, they had to agree that we're going to worship only the one true living God. That's, that's commanded. They have to agree to live under and follow and obey the commands of God. Well, in this sense, of course, the whole world should obey God's law. But the best intentions of obedience are no good to anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Savior. This is where the law forms. This is where the law takes its shape. It's in our understanding of Jesus Christ. And so today what we do is we emphasize the value of the law for those that are believers. And that's because all the law can do for an unbeliever is to condemn him. It can't help him. It's only those who know Christ and obey God's law that can have this prosperity and long life that the Word of God promises. So we live long and prosper in these laws only because of our faith in Christ. And so the second table of the law begins the fulfilling of the second greatest commandment. And that is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I'm sure that you've heard some people talk about the social gospel. And if there is a social gospel, this must be it. The real social gospel is faith in Christ, a faith that works outwardly towards the treatment of our fellow man, to treat our fellow man with love and respect and to honestly desire his best welfare. God loves people. And to be like him, we also have to love people. But I've got to speak cautiously here because loving souls is different from saying that we are to be tolerant of evil lifestyles and live and let live. We don't love our neighbors if we don't correct them. We don't do anyone a favor by letting them continue in a lifestyle that is against God's holy word. We don't do anybody any favors if we don't warn them to flee from the wrath to come. You know, I wonder sometimes what people could possibly think that the warnings of God are for if God tells Christians that you've got to keep quiet, that you can't talk about the way that other people live, and that you just got to let everybody do their own thing because God loves everybody, then I really seriously have to wonder what do they think the warnings of God's word are for? 
If it's not about disobedience, if it's not about being holy as God is holy, then what are we to tell people? No, we are not their friends. We can't love anybody if we care too little to warn them about the sin that brings destruction and eternal death to their souls. And so to love a person is to bring him to Christ. To love him is to tell him to turn from his sin, repent of his sin, trust Christ, because he's the only one who can save them. And so to love them is to teach them to worship God in spirit and truth, And that means they've got to forsake sinful lifestyles that God says are so clearly are against his holiness. So the social social issue is the action that we take towards the lost of this world. And it's not our judgment that counts. We're not talking about, well, you can't judge me. You don't have the right to judge me. It's not our judgment that counts anyway. We're talking about the judgment of God And the Bible tells us how we can justly judge other people by the Word of God. And we're not only told about that, we are commanded to do it. We're not to let people just go on and live any way that they want to live. The Word of God demands that we judge righteous judgment. And so we're not to tolerate sin. We're to purge it from us. And folks, that's not an act of government. That's not an act of submission to this government. It's an act of submission to the holy God. And the way that we affect this is to plead with the heart of people, to understand the gospel of Christ, to realize the grace of God, and bring them to repentance and faith. Now, the sum total of this is that the rejection of these commandments is rejection of God. There is no peace and prosperity in the rejection of God. There's only this what the writer of Hebrews described in Hebrews 10. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries, he that despised Moses' law, died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. And so we're not going to help anybody by preaching tolerance of their sin. You're not going to be able to get around Hebrews chapter 10 by preaching tolerance. To live and let live is a fantasy. If you do this, if you let it go, it's to live and let die. Because that's what happens if we don't honor the justice of these commandments. To leave people alone in sin is not love. And so we come then to the second table of the law. (coughs) And before us, there is the social issue that we can't love God without loving people. Salvation of people is the highest priority Because that's how the love of God is manifested towards us. And so if we're going to shadow the love of God, then we have to tell people how they can experience God's love. Now, I think that we're all aware that loving people and even liking people is a hot-button political topic today. I know that we're past the election now, and aren't we thankful for that, that that it's finally over But you remember in this election cycle, with all the campaigning that's gone on, it seems like for years now, that there's a lot said about immigration. 
And I'm sure that we're going to hear a lot more about immigration. And there was all this talk about <clears throat> building a wall between us and Mexico because Donald Trump said that Mexico was illegally exporting its rapists, their murderers, and their <clears throat> drug pushers into our country. Now, you can decide how you feel about that. But I would like to say, <coughs> excuse me, that Mexico has imported some good things. One of those things is the return of La Familia. And I'm not talking about the gang, of course. I'm, I'm talking about the emphasis on family structure. Now, this commandment begins at the social base. It begins with the foundation of all societies. It starts with family, just as God started the human race with the family. There was a social order in the Garden of Eden that was set. That's a man and a woman, a man and his wife, and then there came children, and then the social order is there. Now, to anchor that societal order, the Bible teaches that there must be respect for family, that the family must be right. And if that goes wrong, then every relationship that flows out of that is going to be wrong from the top to the bottom. And those relationships become increasingly hard to maintain and finally impossible to maintain. And so the more that this country messes with how that we define family and what constitutes a family unit, when we started arguing over that and made something different, then the doom of society was set. I, I, I don't know everything that there is to know about Mexican families, but what I've observed from the outside is the existence of strong generational ties, that the family unit is central. The family spends time together. Uh, you can see that in our community, in the parks uh, on Saturday. You drive by just about any one of them on a Saturday. Most likely you're going to see a jump house and a parking lot that is filled with cars. And there are picnic tables that are lined with food. There's smoke rising from barbecues. There are balloons and there's games and there's fellowship. There's a traffic jam around the park. Nobody can get in to, to do anything. Why? Because it's a three-year-old's birthday party. Everybody goes. Nobody stays at home. And I think nobody dares to stay at home. The moms, the dads, the brothers, the sisters, the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents, the 42nd cousin three times removed, they're all going to be there. And I look at that and I say, where do all these people come from? And that's a party that you don't crash because they all know each other. You can't, you can't crash the party. So all it takes is a birthday, an anniversary, a wedding, a graduation, the loss of a first tooth, whatever it is. And there's a party that happens. There's always a party going on. And that's because the family is strong. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But in other ways, it's not so good. It's not good when all of the family is tied to the wrong religion. Now, because the dominant religion of Mexico is Roman Catholic, many, if not most of these families, are Catholic. And so if there's a family member that gets saved out of that false religion and they become a Baptist, the family is so strong, the family ties are so strong that evangelizing people in these families is very hard. And the tie is not so much the religion any longer, it's the fear of being torn away from family. And they know what that's going to mean to them if they convert. 
So the family is very tight. They're the self-appointed discipline committee. And if, it gets, if somebody gets out of line, then it's the duty of the others to punish them. And they do that by rejecting the person from the family. So you see, they believe the family structure is harmed if you're not all alike. And whether or not they're really seriously uh, devoted to the religion doesn't matter. It's the tradition. It's the family. It's the family ties. And they're incredibly strong. Now, that idea of family is good, a family is good, that's not really the problem. The, the religious aspect, of course, would be. The generational structure is good, and it would be good if we had the same type of care and concern channeled correctly in other American families. Now, I experienced the deep involvement of family a few months ago when I went to visit Daniela on one of her many trips to the emergency room. And uh, Mina told me that when Daniela starts to date and wants to think of getting married, they only have one question for her fiancé. Do you have health insurance? Uh, so I, I arrived at the hospital late on a Sunday evening after church, and I expected that I would find Mina, Jorge, and Jorge Jr. right there. And I, I expected I would find them, but instead when I got to the waiting room, it's a room that's full of family. There's it, does, it doesn't matter what's wrong. I mean, if one of them has a problem, they all have a problem. And they're supportive. And so you go in the room, and there's grandmas and aunts and cousins. Everybody shows up. The Rico family is the same. On the night that Violetta passed away, I got the news, and I hurried to the hospital, and there was family in her room. And they were all spilling out into the hallway. And so I went around that room shaking their hands and offering condolences and went out into the hallway and spoke to them and, and offered my condolences. But I really couldn't do a lot for them because family was already there. Family was taking care of the problem. They gathered around each other. And I don't know how many of them were there or how they got there on such short notice. One of them told me, that's just half of them. There are others that are on the way. And so they family converged on this place and and... Everybody had a part in sharing the grief of one part of the family. You see, immigration has brought some of that back to us. Whether we're talking about Mexico or the Philippines or other parts of the world, there's a sense of family that needs to be restored. Our American families are typically detached. I have, I have cousins that I haven't seen in 50 years. I don't know where they are. I don't know what they're doing. I have family that I've never met. I have family in Napa, just 40 miles away, that I haven't seen in four or five years. Can you remember that just a few years ago that a popular plank in the Republican Party platform was family values? Do you remember hearing that in this last election? Was there much said about family values? You know why they don't talk about it anymore? It's because family values is a code word for anti-gay. Now, the world knows that the LBGTQ agenda is not about family values. We don't know about family values, and the reason that we don't is because the family has been upset. The social order has been upset, and so the idea of an Exodus 20 verse 12 family is fast fading away. Now you think about it. How are fathers going to be honored when less, or mothers honored, when less than half of American children spend all of their childhood with both parents? Less than half of them live in a home that's a first marriage. 
Now, the Bible gives us a picture of family. And here, in the top of the list of the commandments that God says should govern our relationships is family. At the head of the list of the second table is the governance of all human relationships, and that's family. And you can't ignore that. You can't, you, you can't upset this and hope that all the rest of our relationships will be right. And so it starts with exercising and obeying God's law. And later on, as we continue this message in, in, in the next weeks, we're going to see that every relationship that we have begins with the honor and respect that starts in the family. And there is no hope that we can have respect for those that are outside of the family when the closest bond between humans is found to be without honor and respect. Now, I thought about this in regard to Jesus' statement in John 6.32. He said, For if ye love them that love you... What thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. Now maybe you don't think the way that I do. That might be a good thing. But maybe you don't think the way that I do. But I read that statement and what stood out to me was this command. Now Jesus assumed that there were those that love us. I mean that's just a given, isn't it? There are some people that love us. And because they love us, we return their love. There isn't any special commendation for returning the love that others have for you because that's innate. That's, that's, that's a natural thing. That's part of our spiritual makeup. But the hard part is loving people who don't love you. Now, it takes a special effort to do that. Very often that's hard to do. And it seems to me that Jesus' statement there in Luke is against the backdrop of family because who loves you more than family and who do you love back more than family? That's a natural thing. That's just built into us. So then, it would be unnatural and abnormal for the family structure to be broken because that's where we learn this, this kind of love for each other. So the top of the list starts with family, because if that's not right, then there isn't a relationship that can be right. If you can't love those that are in the family, which is natural and innate that's been built into us, if you can't give respect there, then how could you ever hope to do it in that which is unnatural and impossible for the depraved human heart to do, and that is to love people who are not a part of the family, those that don't love us. Now, family, then, is the backbone of society. And if that backbone is broken, the whole society falls. And how does God say that the family receives its strength? It's here in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Now, we actually see this in the development of Israel's culture. We see it in the responsibility of parents to teach their children to respect them. Now, children are not going to do it and stay with it unless the parents have planted that seed in them and nurture and, and, and help that seed to grow. Now, if you think about family structure in Israel, it would top, it would top what we see in Mexican families or Filipino families. And how does it do that? Because what happened in one family in Israel concerned all families in Israel. What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas, in Israel. Now, a good case in point here is the laws of inheritance and the Leverett marriage laws. Now, that's a very big subject, but just briefly, I can give an example of how this worked. 
Uh, I think that you're all familiar with the story of Naomi and of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. Her husband, uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and her son married Ruth. Then he also died while they were living in Moab. And then when Naomi returned to Israel, she still had a claim on the land that belonged to her husband, Elimelech. Now, you see, in Israel, the land always remained in the family if it could be redeemed. And Naomi's son, who had died, was the heir to that land. And the law required that if a man died without children, that his brother or his next of kin must marry the widow and then have children who would claim the land. Now, that's, that's how we get the story. That's the story behind Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was the widow. Boaz was the near kinsman who could marry Ruth and raise children in order to retain ownership of the land. And that kept it in the family of Elimelech. That's called the Leveret Law. And that's an example of how tight the family structure was. Families ruled everything that happened in Israel. Now, you can also see it in the story of Ahab and Naboth. Ahab, who was the king, wanted Naboth's vineyard, but Naboth wouldn't sell it to him because it was part of his family's inheritance. And so Jezebel had Naboth killed so that Ahab could seize his land. Now, that was a horrible scheme, a terrible thing to be done, but even the king of Israel could not take a piece of land that belonged in a family. And so the whole structure of land ownership was built on family, which shows this, that when God begins to deal with Israel, this is where he's going to start with, this is what he'll start with first, the promise of being in the land is going to have to do with family. And so his instructions on human relationships begin with the family. And the problem that we have today of working through all the societal issues that we have is the breakdown of family. And it starts with the failure of authority. Like the breakdown of God's authority in the first table will destroy true worship to him and relationship with God. So the breakdown of, of a family, of parental authority in the second table of the law will destroy all human relationships. Now here is our problem then. Authority has become a bad word. Now to some degree... It's always been bad because we naturally resist authority. And so children had to be taught to obey because our old human nature hates authority. And in the past 50 years, that problem has become more acute when challenges of authority are not properly met. Now, going back to my teenage years, the challenge against authority was growing. You see it in bumper stickers on cars today that say, Challenge Authority. Well, that, that movement actually got started post-World War II. After the war, there was calmness and there was respect. We, people fell into their roles without kicking and screaming. But the war had changed things. Oh, it did strengthen our patriotism, no doubt about that, and how thankful we are, as we were last week, for veterans of our country who served in wars to protect us. It helps our patriotism, but that war took its toll on the family. And that's because afterwards there were more women that were working outside of the home. And now there's somebody else that's raising the kids. And then there came the Vietnam War. And authority was challenged. And we saw something there that we'd never seen before. College campuses erupted with protest and resistance to authority. And it makes a little difference 
about whether that war was right or wrong on this issue. The new issue that we were facing then is that children are now bigger and children are smarter than their parents. And they're more assertive and far much less likely to embrace and to obey authority. And so you could see back in that time, if you were alive, that our leaders were exasperated by this. They didn't know what to do. I mean, you couldn't just go out and shoot them like they did at Kent State. And so the family finally settled down that the only solution to this is let them do what they want to do. Just leave them alone. Let them do what they want to do. Let them have their way. And so the die was cast. Kids lost authority over them in the home. And now that authority has been lost in society at large. And now these kids have become parents. And parents who never were taught authority do not teach authority. And so the consequence is kids rule the home. So Junior tells mom and dad what to do. And mom and dad suck it up. And they put Junior on his soft little pillow and they feed him grapes and fan him all day long. Now, there's disrespect in the home. And now that's rampant everywhere in society. Authority is questioned everywhere. The bumper sticker, the bumper sticker has now become public policy as, as politicians pander to every peanut that protests. It ruins relationship, and there isn't any respect for people. The individual is the one who counts above all. And folks, you cannot have respect for God if there is no respect for your fellow man. Now let me give you an idea of how parents feed into the mentality of this disrespect. Junior comes home from school, and he has a tale about how the teacher grabbed his cell phone in the class because he was texting instead of listening. And the teacher tells Junior... Well, I'm going to put your phone up, and you can have it back at the end of the week. So Junior goes home, and he tells Mom. And then Mom gets furious, and she jumps in her car. She drives to the school, and there in front of her child and the class, she berates the teacher for daring to touch her son's phone and hamper his freedom of individual expression. So the parent undermines the teacher's authority. And the child learns that he is king, and he gets whatever he wants. Now, you flash back to the time that I was young, and if the teacher disciplined me, not for texting, but for talking while she's teaching, I get sent to detention, which is probably a concept that public schools don't know anything about any longer. But I'm sent to detention, and I get home late. You know what happens, what's waiting for me when I get home late? Oh, I'd be so blessed if detention was just what I got at school. Oh, I'm going to be detained, all right. I'm going to be too sore to go out to play. Uh, I'll be licking my wounds and praying that Mom doesn't tell Dad when he gets home because then my detention starts all over again. So my parents taught me that the teacher has authority. And if you disobey that authority, it's going to be ten times worse for you when you get home until you learn who has the authority and you sit there and you shut up and quit talking. Now here, here, here's a word of caution to you parents. If you don't seriously discipline at home and if you don't teach authority, then you're fanning the flames of the rejection of God. There is an assault on the family. And for every support that's torn out from under that authority structure, there is corresponding rejection of God. Now, the SCOTUS decision last year on gay marriage kicks supports out from under the family. Government has become the enabler 
to destroy family. And one of these days, all of that's going to be turned back on them as their authority is destroyed by anarchy. I was doing my daily Bible reading a few days ago. I was in Second Kings, and I was reading about King Manasseh. And for some reason, that passage struck me on that day. And I was struck by the wickedness of Manasseh, but really I was more struck by the anger of God. Now, if I could put it this way, God was livid. God was livid. He was so angry that he promised he would not stop judgment from falling on Judah. Now, soon after Manasseh, Josiah, Manasseh's grandson, began to reign. And the Bible says that there was never a king that was like him. He was a good, godly man. He set out to right all of the wrongs of his grandfather and his father before him. And Josiah was distraught at how wicked that Judah was, especially after he heard the reading of God's law. And when he heard the reading of God's law, he determined uh, with a massive campaign that he was going to return Judah to the worship of Jehovah. All his reforms were astounding. There was no one that was like him. And he even went far back into the time of Solomon of 100 years before and, and corrected some of the wrongs that never had been corrected in all of that time. But you know something? As great as he was, and as much as he did to repair the worship of Jehovah, it was too late. And God said Judah is going to fall. And that's because they had passed the point of repentance. And I thought about that. And I thought about America. We've gone too far. Now, people have asked me, what do you think about revival in America? I think that we have a Romans 1 problem, and that's when our country has gone this far into things like the homosexual agenda, that's the last straw, and God gives us over to a reprobate mind. God stops working, and judgment comes. Now, let me back that into the fifth commandment. What is going to keep us from living long and prospering. Now, we, we, we came before, uh, what came before this rapid ascent of the LBGTQ agenda. Now, wasn't that a radical shift after 6,000 years of matrimony? In the past 40 years, America has been headed there. America took this radical left turn at about 200 years into our existence. And at that point, the family structure began to break down. And within another 20 years, we started to face a redefinition of family. Now we have people like Hillary Clinton and the village concept, which is to take the authority away from the home, put it into the hands of the government, and what has the government done for us? Destroyed the family. Now, if there's, if there's anything that tells us that we may be living in the last days of this country, this could very well be it. I'm not trying to make predictions. But I want to tell you that as Christians in this country, this is not going to overtake us like a thief in the night. We see this. Our eyes are wide open to this. And I know that there are some of you that don't even expect that we're going to be able to survive the next four years. I don't know. Will we? Let's take a look. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. And we'll look here at the downward spiral of doom of a depraved society. And I want you to take a look at what shows up in the list of sins among a whole lot of wicked things that we just don't care to discuss in polite company. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 26. For this cause, 
God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Now, Paul has just nailed us to the wall, didn't he? Who can say that the Bible is an outdated, irrelevant book? This passage is us, isn't it? This describes America. Do you see the interconnections? Why would Exodus 20, verse 12, show up in this passage? I'll tell you why. And that's when a person loses respect for authority, all sorts of evil will follow. There is no stopping the descent because rejection of authority is rejection of God. Now let's go back up to the top of the passage. It begins at verse number 18. And it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Might underline that for Thanksgiving. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So they have no respect for God. The upward relationship is wrong, and that manifests itself in the lateral relationships of man to man. And so we come out with men to men and women to women doing unseemly things. And at the top of the list of the second table of the law is the relationship of people to each other, man to man. And it begins with a warning of disrespect to parents. Now, the wisdom of God is simply amazing. The order that God gives in the commandments, this isn't a fluke. This is put at the head of the second table because it's so critical. It bridges us to the first, and it, bears, it has bearing on what comes afterward. God always knows what he's doing. I don't know if it's too late for America, but I do know that it's going to be impossible for us unless we write the family. Every law that we pass that strengthens abortion that funds destroying the sanctity of life, every law that undermines the family structure, as the Bible describes it, one man and one woman for life, anything else is a self-inflicted wound, wound, wound of destruction. We, we can't survive unless authority is restored. Now, the Republicans have a, have a way of saying that, law and order. Only what we're talking about as Christians is not the civil law of America. We're talking about the moral authority of God's law. And we've got to restore that law and order. 
or there's not going to be any hope for this country. We've got to keep family strong. Honor your father and your mother. That's the beginning of it. And if you don't have that, we're going to have trouble everywhere. Teach your kids to obey authority. And then when they're older, they'll teach their kids to obey authority. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the Word of God. How you structure it, you just, just uncanny how you know what you're doing. Uh, we wouldn't see these things and know these unless the Word of God is opened up to us and we see so perfectly how you keep everything on the right track, keep everything going exactly as it should. Honor God first. Love Him with all of our heart. And that's going to filter down into the honor and respect that we have for our parents, which in turn reflects the whole order of society, the authority that's there of God to man and children to their parents and all of this authority that you've given, the structure of authority that's in your word. Lord, may we see this and may we make an honest effort to write things in our family, to take control again in our families, to build that family structure, the generational ties that we don't have any longer. Help us to keep families strong. Lord, we thank you again today for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the beginning of this. Salvation comes from him, and there is no salvation until we first respect you as Lord of our lives. Be Lord of our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that today. Speak to the heart of some person today. We want to teach people and warn them about the wrath to come because of disobedience to the commandments of God. Help us today, Lord. Bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.